WHT, New York City. Welcome to Hot 97's Street Soldiers, the hottest talk on radio. Hosted by Lisa Evers. I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We are focusing on education, just how much schooling is necessary to be a success in today's world. There's a lot of debate about that, especially with a high cost of higher education. We're going to be talking about that with our panel and also on social media. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lisa Evers. Tweet me right now, Instagram, at Lisa Evers, and also on my Facebook page, the official Lisa Evers. And what we're focusing on is with so many thousands and thousands of children, thousands and thousands of teens and college students going back to school, back to classes at this time of the year, there's also a lot of debate and some controversy in some areas about whether or not higher education is worth the higher cost. We've all heard stories about people who go to school, they go to graduate school, they have all of these bills, these school loans, all these other bills that they have to pay, and that they can't just pay them off. So they graduate or they get their degree and they end up with tens of thousands of dollars in debt already. And with the economy the way that it is changing, with the uh, job situation out there where so many people are competing for the, the good paying jobs, some of these students and the graduates are saying, was it all worth it? On the other hand, you have the factor in many of our communities where we look at education, not just in terms of the degree that you get, the education you get, but also the social skills that you get as you go through that particular education process. And most importantly, from my perspective and from a lot of the people that I work with, whether it's in radio or television, the communication skills. You can't get what you want. You can't get where you want in life if you can't communicate and you can't articulate. So that's what we're talking about with our panel. We ask you to join the discussion on Twitter, at Lisa Evers. Just hit me up right there. And uh, let me introduce our panel and get right to it. Joining us is Laurie Favors. She's the co-founder with her husband, Brian, of Breaking the Cycle Consulting. It's an educational consulting firm that tries to make education relevant to our children in communities of color and in our urban communities. She has her bachelor's degree in Africana Studies, a minor in Spanish, and also her law degree. Larry, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We really appreciate it. Also with us is Dove Clark. She founded her own publicity and branding business called Tiger Eye Entertainment. She's been a journalist for 15 years with her own Gen X website, lifestyle website called Herb Life. That's U-R-B. I know everyone's thinking E-H-E-R-B. It's urblife.com. And she's a high school graduate with a little bit of college. Dove, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. And also with us is Brian Favors. He is the former high school teacher and educational consultant. He is the uh, co-founder with his wife, Laurie, of Breaking the Cycle Consulting. He has two master's degrees in education, a bachelor's degree in sociology, and works with a lot of teens in our communities. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Let me ask you the question, because there's a lot of people, especially young men, that really don't feel college is for them. What do you say to them? I'm always, and I get this, I get this a lot. Um, I always say that, you know, co- first of all, college is not the end all, be all. College is a resource. Um, I went to college. I'm a proponent of it because, uh, not only from an educational standpoint, also just from networking, uh, from a discipline. I know a lot of the skills that I have, a lot of the resources that I've acquired, I got in higher education. But one of the problems is, is when we tell our kids that that is the only option. And oftentimes, um, a lot of young people go to college without even an idea of what they want to do. And there are other ways to, you know, there are other ways to reach your goals. And I think in our system, we, we spend so much time solely speaking about college. And we got to think, 
30 years ago in Bed-Stuy, you could um, get a high school diploma, and if you were willing to work, you could raise your family, and you could, you could, you could, you know, you could survive. You get a blue-collar job yeah. that probably had benefits. Right. I know a lot of college graduates who are unemployed right now. And then when you add race into it, I think there's a stat that says that a black person with a college degree has about as much chance as uh, a white man who dropped out of high school. Right. So we see there are some racial issues that are tied. We saw with the recession amongst the black community, it was all, it was the same. You know, we're the last hired and first fired. And we know that oftentimes in a lot of our in a lot of our businesses, once the quota is met, oftentimes there are no more minorities being hired. So there are a lot of issues with this. And last thing I want to say, in my neighborhood of Bed-Stuy. was not the last thing you want to say? Well, we got a lot of issues. <laughs> just in regards to this, in my neighborhood of Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, most of the people who are running the businesses in our community, the bodegas, the hair salons, the laundromats, they're people who couldn't pass a high school regents, but they understand cultural economics. So cultural economics has to play a role in this. So it's a it's a broad conversation. I hope we can get into it a little more. Well, let me just ask you about the cultural economics because you did an experiment with your high school students, most of whom come from public housing developments and what would be called low-income families. Right. And tell us what you found. Which which experiment was this? The clothing with the clothing and yeah. how much money and how much Absolutely. resources and 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 cash they actually had well, at their disposal. We were doing a lesson and we were talking about the fact that in the Jewish community, the dollar bounces twenty times before it leaves, which means that the money is circulated. People have jobs. Young people have jobs. And even if you don't um, graduate from college, you can still maintain a business and survive. And one day in class. Um, we were talking about how the dollar doesn't bounce in our community, and we took a tally of all the clothing that we had on. I think we had over $10,000 worth of belts and shoes and, and $200 jeans, but just the whole fact that and, and we weren't, um, you know, we were buying all of that, all of these uh, clothing items from, um, we weren't even buying it from each other. So it wasn't even benefiting us. And in our community, really, the haircuts and the underground economy, those are the only things that we own. That's the only time you see the dollar bouncing in our community. The schools have to do a better job of cultivating that entrepreneurial spirit so that even if we do go to college or if we don't, we know how to create business in our own community. All right. And talk, talking about creating business, Dove Clark, you founded your own. Tell us about that. <clears throat> well, I actually founded my own out of... Um kind of I don't have a uh, plan B in my life. I have been working corporate jobs, you know, working for other people. Um, I had a skill set, you know, I could type and file and all the secretarial things at work. And the thing was, I kept getting promoted up to these positions next to the presidents and vice presidents of the company because I knew how to make them sound better all the time. So they would literally bring me in to write their letters and, you know, uh, uh, craft their phone calls and what they're going to say to these people. And so I've been consulting as long as I can remember. I, back then, I just didn't know what it was. So when it came to um, deciding to move from the West Coast to New York, I kind of transitioned into writing first. Um, and I wasn't getting paid. I was working a full-time job doing that. And then I started a PR company, again, not knowing really even what I was doing other than I knew a lot of music people and I knew a lot of journalists. So I said, well, let me try to just marry all these people together. So I was really doing three jobs and still making less than, I mean, probably about what I make in one month in a year. And at the time, I guess it just kind of was desperation, you know, when you hit your early 30s and you're just like, oh my gosh, I hate everything about my life. So I just picked up and moved to New York, you know, and, and people kind of laughed like, oh, that's cute. You're going to move to New York and you don't really know what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. Well, I can say, thankfully, I've been working from home um, ever since. 
I moved to Manhattan, and not a lot of people can say they can survive working from home in Manhattan. That's for sure. So, um, and for themselves. Right. And I was really fortunate when I moved here to start with upstart um, artists like Jim Jones and Needles and Ron Browse and Cypher Sounds and, you know, a lot of different people who um, were kind of on the bubble in the early 2000s, and I got to grow with them through my career. So... You know, I think that's the the main thing is positioning myself with my skill set and and also trusting myself when everyone else said, oh, well, you need a degree for that or you need education. And I respect that. I know that there are great communications classes out here. But how did you counter that when they said, oh, well, you know, you you don't have a degree in communications, but you knew in your heart and your mind that you had your own skill set that could get the job done. How did you convince them? Well, uh, it's funny you ask that. Actually, in Seattle, um, I lived in Tacoma, Washington, and I worked in downtown Seattle. And I applied to many, many PR companies to do, you know, press release writing or bio writing. And none of them would even interview me because I didn't have a college degree on paper. Couldn't even get in the door. Not even in the door. They just look at you, look down, no, we're okay. All right. So I, I at first had a lot of self-doubt. And... In time, I just said, you know what? I have nothing else to lose, literally nothing. So, and I did it, and I've learned to trust myself so much that now when people say, oh, well, you can't, I just laugh. I'm like, oh, okay. I'm sad for you that you don't believe in yourself. But, you know, I know where, where I'm at, so. And you keep it, keep it going like yeah. that. What a, what a great story. Louis Favors, when you, you, you have a law degree. Yes. But you also do a lot of work with young girls, yes. with our teenage girls. Yes. Tell me what you see happening with our inner city teenage girls. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. In terms of education. Yes, yes. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of what Brian echoed earlier is, is also reminiscent in, as it pertains to young girls. Unfortunately, we don't have an education system that's structured to meet the specific needs of black and brown girls, which is the population I generally work with. Um, we don't have an education system that's structured to meet their specific needs. It's not one that was designed with their needs in mind. And so we're seeing a lot of the outplay of that. Um, we mentioned earlier the, the, um, the, the fight that they had in the McDonald's and certain parts of East New York, you've seen a lot of media images of just rampant violence um, among young teen girl populations. And I think that's really reflective of some of the broader issues we have within those communities. Um, and now we have access to social media, so you're going to see a lot more of that. But I think what we find happening is that black girls are being left behind the same way that black boys were. We now have numbers. Um, I believe it was the um, National Women's Law Center and the NAACP LDF recently put out a report, Unlocking Opportunity for Black and Brown Girls, that saw that black girls, um, I believe in New York, were suspended at 900 times the rate of white girls. And you see that the, the gross e disparity in suspensions and expulsions, and those are really entree points to the school-to-prison pipeline. So it makes sense that we also see rapidly increasing numbers for black and brown women um, who are being arrested, who are being placed under criminal justice control. And so I think we're seeing all of the worries and the fears that we had typically reserved for black and brown boys, we now see has always been there for black and brown girls, but we're just paying attention and have the numbers to back it up. And are, is it something that people are not really paying enough attention to? That's just kind of not getting the same, not that there's solutions being offered for our black and brown boys, but in terms of the girls, it's it's not even yet quite acknowledged as a problem yet? And you know, it's funny because we do have the Young Men's Initiative, My Brother's Keeper. We have some at least discussion about how to meet the needs as it pertains to black and brown boys. And even we had conversations about fatherless children. It's always the impact of a fatherless 
uh, household on a boy, and we never talk about the impact that it has on girls, even though they're both growing up in the same household. My father not being there impacted me very much the same way it impacted my brother. So we have at least lip service that speaks to the needs of black and brown boys. We don't even really have that when it comes to black and brown girls right now. And so I think the push that you're seeing from um, organizations like the African American Policy Forum, groups like the, the two that put out the report I mentioned earlier, are starting to shift that conversation. But unfortunately, it's just not there yet, much the same way black women are not really there at the center of conversation generally. And when you talk about the unmet needs of these high school girls, high school age girls, in, ter- in terms of getting an education and really preparing them for, you know, for a future, for a successful future, a really good life, what do you see are some of the unmet needs? Well, I think the idea that we only talk about success in terms of do you graduate high school, make it out of your community, go off to college, then go work for someone else, and maybe never come back to your community, right? So the whole idea of success is one that is a a brain drain model. It's one that encourages children from these communities to leave the community, and we define success in terms of how fast and how far you can get from the hood. And the problem with that is that if all of our best and brightest are leaving, thinking they have to go to college, thinking they have to go get employed by other people in order to be successful, no one is coming back to address the needs that are resident within the community. And so we're having, it's a complete mismatch of need and opportunity to meet that need. And so even for our students who do go off to college and who do graduate, um, you know, I have friends from who graduated Harvard Law School who have arguably some of the most powerful degrees in the country, but when they're at work at law firms where they are the only black voice, still shrink inside and are still unable to show up fully as black women because you have to couch yourself and make sure your speech is such that it's making your white colleagues more comfortable. So even within the, the models that we we have for what success looks like, black and brown women are not able to fully actualize themselves and manifest the gifts, skills, and talents that they have, and they're not able to use the education that they do get to go back home and change the community, which is sad because black women are some of the most educated per capita um, of all populations we have currently in the United States. So we're getting degrees at faster rates than anybody else, but we're still not empowered to use that to make change in our community. And, and hopefully hopefully we'll see that change. I want to invite everybody to, to, to please jump in. Brian, in terms of some of the, you, you work with a lot of cultural factors that are barriers or um, to education for our young people, again, in our urban communities. What do you see as some of those barriers, for example? Um, uh, We have a a spectacularly high number of kids that just can't even read. They go through school. They come out of the public school system even after 10th grade, and their their reading skills, just their their basic skills are, are just really low. So we know what poverty breeds. We know that by the time our kids even get to school, you know, kids who are from, you know, disadvantaged communities have already, what is it, like thousands of words or hundreds of words they already don't have. So they're already at a disadvantage. But then you have a school system that doesn't recognize the assets that they bring to the table, that doesn't utilize culturally relevant books that would even be an entry point for our kids. So we have these talented kids. I always look at it from the perspective, all of our kids are Malcolm. You know, Malcolm was this prisoner who um, would have been another prison statistic had not a culturally competent educator, Bimby, for those of you who watched the movie, touched him and helped him to recognize his potential. I worked in alternative schools for a long time, and all of our young people are one network away from seeing the whole thing differently. And I've seen kids who have come into high school reading at a fourth grade level. I mean, I know kids who would read four pages in the whole day, but they'd have it with them on the bus on the bus, and could turn it around into a hip-hop verse, right? Reading high-level stuff. So um, this whole idea that our kids, we know that they're, they're far behind, but I always like to look at when we do professional development workshops, why was it that my grandma's generation in the segregated South, who would have 70 of us in a crowded room with five books to share, why was it that we were able to produce so much more with 
so fewer resources. There was a cultural component. There was this belief that um, it doesn't matter what you're starting from, you can do anything. There was a spiritual component that's tied to it, that when, when a young person wants to uh, benefit their, their, their cultural group, when they, when they have the fire to change. Everyone takes pride yeah. in that achievement. Our, our, our segregated high school students, they were at the four, getting 4.0s and at the forefront of leadership in the 50s and 60s. So they and uh, we did a project with the movie The Great Debaters, and we started to do the research on segregated schools. They had something in those segregated schools that we don't have. Even this conversation we're had, we have now, it's very similar to Du Bois and Booker T. But the difference between the vocational track and the political track, we were all coming home with that education. Now the education, as my wife uh, talked about. People aren't looking to be educated. They're getting training so that they can get jobs. So they can and, and they get, can get out get of the neighborhood and never and come back. Out. And then we have to wait until gentrification comes before our community gets better and then a significant percentage of us are pushed out. So even when the education system is working, it's not working for black and brown people. We have more black PhDs, master's degrees, black president, but more incarceration and poverty. 95% um, of our friends who work on Wall Street and our lawyers, they get 50 hours a week to their job. and at best one two hours a week on giving back and it, and, it, and it shouldn't be that I should be able to give my 40 50 hours a week in a way that takes care of me individually but also makes my neighborhood better or be involved but they're, they're also too I mean to be fair there are a lot of people that are involved absolutely very high profile careers and if they don't have the time to do mentoring or actually be involved in, in specific programs help you know give the money that that keeps them going and helps other people do them absolutely but the difference is just like we talked about with the Jewish uh, community I have friends who are lawyers from the Jewish community who get to benefit nine to five nine to eight whatever their day is they're taking care of their community and benefiting the broader the broader society as a whole and a lot of times for African-Americans we have to make that choice am I gonna get the money and, and because I have friends who have worked for corporations that have a negative impact on their community, that's pretty common, right, when you start to get in high positions. What about the, uh, in terms of the, the education value, how do you decide, if you're somebody who's in high school listening to this right now, how do you decide whether or not you should try for college or try for junior college? There's online universities now. There's a lot of different ways to get an education, but how do you decide what's right for you when you really might not be sure what you want to, what career you want to pursue? Well, I was a first-generation college student, so there was no one in my household that had gone to school that I had access to that I could then ask, you know, how do you fill out a financial aid form? What is financial aid? Who knew that there were people out there who could give you money? So you definitely want to start out with just some of the basics, and if you have a guidance counselor that's worth their salt, then you would want to definitely step into the guidance counselor's office. But as it pertains to what type of college you want to go to, and, and you know, I applied to college from another country. I lived in Germany and applied to school here. I accepted sight unseen, never got a chance to do the visiting thing with, you know, a lot of my rich friends got to do. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes in that process because I didn't have access to somebody who could inform me and help me inform myself on that process. So I think you need to know the difference between private college, public college, what types of financial aid packages are out there. Do you want to go to a private school where, you know, you're not going to get access to federal funds because of the way the school is set up? And if so, are you going to have to take out private loans? When do those private loans become due? Do you get the benefit of a federal loan where you can wait until after you graduate or do you have to start paying right away? I have friends who signed up for school, thought it was going to be wonderful and then got their first bill for a $700 loan payment the month after they started because they didn't get the right types of loans. So, you know, making sure that you know what type of school you want to go to. If you don't know what career you want to end up in, be okay with that because a lot of us are working in careers that we may not necessarily have degrees in and that's okay. Um, but you really have to think about getting 
picking a college and picking your college experience the same way you would decide how to pick any other very major large thing in your life. It requires you to be very serious about it and ask questions from people who can actually give you some information. And really try to get as much information as possible. Yeah. I want to add to that. Um, I think pressure from families and societal pressure to go to college can be a little overwhelming. Um, I actually was accepted. I got a scholarship to a, um, a performing arts college when I graduated high school. And my mother talked me out of it because she said I'd ruin my life. It wasn't formal business education. My mother has a master's degree in psychology and education. and So she was using uh, the psych on you. Oh my gosh. And she, you know, she's, she's one of those perpetual students. I think she's gone, you know, she teaches English as a second language to people and, you know, she's done real estate. She's a jack of many trades, but she was also a dream killer. You know, like I had been, you know, in school band and the plays and, you know, I got picked two kids out of our high school got picked for this program. Mm. And one was me. And, you know, now, of course, many years later, she said she regretted talking me out of it. But what she did was she forced me to go to community college because at the time we didn't have money. The government, um, my father uh, committed suicide when I was five. He was in oh, the military. Oh, so sorry. Oh, we're, we're past that. We're moved on. We're okay with it. But he, he would have, you know, obviously, had he been alive, probably my life would have been a little different. But the government money that I should have gotten, I never got. Wow. Because Reagan, when I was 17, changed the law so that uh, we no longer got college money. So now here I am, 18 years old. The only skills that I'm really interested in are performing, you know, and I was a dancer and I wrote music. And that's and what you were things. doing. And now you're forcing me to go to school. So I, I took a radio class and my radio teacher said, um, yeah, she would be really good at inciting riots and wrote that on my permanent report. <laughs> and I actually wear that as a badge of honor. I think he recognized early on I, I had leadership potential. Exactly. That's I took well, it. Look right. at that. So what, do you, what do you say? I mean, you work, you've worked with a lot of artists like Jim Jones and yep. and uh, Ron Browse and, and, and many others. Yo Gotti. Yo Gotti, mm-hmm. many others. The, what do you say? There, there's a whole generation. There are a lot there a lot of guys especially now that are, are 15 16 17 oh, uh, 18 that you ask them what, what do you want to do you want to be a rapper. they want to be a rapper i don't need to go to college what do you say to them okay no okay a few things some of the rappers that you know out here do have college degrees right. exactly right. There, was, there was an article on let's that let's go back let's go back farther rappers. to like como d and right. and you know uh, young mc and there were guys back then who had master's degrees and they just didn't talk about it because it wasn't cool to be educated i guess which is a problem in and of itself which is a problem and i think that you know i know um freaky ziki from Dipset. he went to college he went to columbia you know like a lot of people don't understand that some of these some of these guys even the ones that i have that haven't had college are the most savvy businessmen you will ever meet in your life and the role they play on screen doesn't necessarily always show the behind the scenes so what I always tell young men and women who want to get into music is that you have to educate yourself on the business and I'll just start asking them questions and I'm like see in that five seconds I just took all your money Because you didn't even know. I said, you're a mark. And every person that you come out here talking about, you got this little money, you got that little money, they're going to take it from you because that's what they specialize in. It's, it's making money, it's, it's making making money, money off, off your you. dream. Right. Off your dream. So, so there's that. And then the element of the now the new thing is I want to be a blogger. 
And honey, there's no money in it. I've been writing on the internet <laughs> since 2000. I was an editor. Shout out all hip hop. I was there from 2001 all to 2008. <laughs> I was an editor there when people used to say we were hacks and the internet will never be taken seriously and all these things. Well, now you see these celebrity bloggers, but just know a lot of them that are, are celebrities For everyone now you know of that, have been that working there's thousands broke. and thousands. A lot of them are not making a lot of money. Sitting at Starbucks to try to get Thank the free you. Wi-Fi. All right, we're God gonna bless. we're gonna take a short we're gonna take a short break. You're listening to Hot 97 Street Soldiers. I'm your host Lisa Evers. We're talking about education versus entrepreneurships. What's the way to go? How do you decide for yourself? How do you decide for your children? We're gonna talk about that with our guests. And you can follow me on Twitter at Lisa Evers. Keep the conversation going there. Lisa Evers official on Facebook, on the Gram, Google Plus, all over the place. And we'll be back right after this. Hey, yo, this is Pat Post with Lisa Evers. Put your thinking caps on. Street Soldiers. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we are talking about the value of education. Is it overvalued? Is the high price of higher education, is it worth it? And what about as a parent? A lot of our kids are going back to school right now. And many parents are not sure how involved they should be in what actually takes place in the classroom. Where do you draw the line between being a helicopter parent or just being a parent that's just totally absentee? What about if you have a parent that you feel has is culturally indifferent to your child or feels may have a problem? How do you handle that? Or is making comments that you know that are totally inappropriate to a child that are already you know, creating that negative self-image. What do you do about that? Um, we're going to be talking about that in just a moment with our guests, but let me reintroduce our wonderful panel to you. Laurie Favors is an attorney. She's also the co-founder with her husband, Brian, of Breaking the Cycle Consulting. It's an educational consulting firm. She has a bachelor's in Africana Studies, minor in Spanish, and a law degree. Also with us is Dove Clark. She founded her own publicity and branding business called Tiger Eye Entertainment. She's been a journalist for 15 years, has her own Gen X lifestyle website, called herblife.com that's U-R-B uh, life.com and she's a high school grad with a little bit of college and also with us is Brian Favors he's a former high school teacher in Brooklyn educational consultant co-founder of Breaking the Cycle Consulting and basically what he and his wife do is work with a lot of schools and students to try to make education more relevant to the children especially in black and brown communities he has his bachelor's in sociology and two master's degrees in education. And Larry, I want to ask you, as the kids go back to school, sure. what do you tell parents in terms of how active they need to be with their child? I would say for black children and, and brown children, you cannot be an overly involved parent. I think we mentioned earlier the statistic between white children who hear something like three million words by the time they're three and black and brown children or from economically disenfranchised communities where they hear like less than 100,000, something, some variable like that. Um, you cannot be too overly involved when it comes to the parenting of black and brown children. And we know that the role of the parent and the active involvement of the parent is one of the most powerful predictors of students who are going to go off and be successful. In really? College. Yes. By, by far more than the teachers you have, more than the school you're in, more than the, the newness of your iPad or iPhone, your parental involvement is going to have a far more greater impact on your child's academic success than any of those other factors. And, and I'm interested to hear you say that because when I've interviewed people, very successful people, whatever field, whether it's, it's sports, it's politics, it's media, whatever it is, they, they have always had, even if they came from a very tough economic situation, they always had that person. And even if the parents weren't there, they had the aunt, the uncle, they had yeah. a grand, the, you know, the grand was there. They had that person there with them. Right. 
that was just that would not let them slip just would not let it's them huge. fall down it's huge and we know that for, especially for black and brown children that teachers of all races have lower expectations of them that includes black Even and black brown teachers right? because we're all socialized to see a lesser value when we see blackness which is why black children will engage in name play that is very disrespectful of other black children based on things like skin color hair texture in ways that we won't with our white friends because we have all been trained to see blackness as less valuable and so we know that if teachers have less expectations for our children regardless of their genius if administrators have lower expectations for our children regardless of their genius we know that if a parent is not there if some loved one is not there pushing that child and pushing the school to see the genius in that child in a way that's mutually respectful of course then you're going to be at a disadvantage and our children are already fraught their, their pathways are already fraught with so many disadvantages that it is on us to really be pushing the limits as far as we can because over involvement in my opinion doesn't exist because we have teachers who are largely unprepared to teach the specific to the specific needs of black and brown children a teacher who graduates from Columbia who would be a great teacher on the Upper West Side would fall on their face flat in East New York because the needs are different and the teachers aren't taught to prepare for those specific needs so for black and brown children and parents in particular be at every PTA meeting if you have an open school that has hours where you can go participate if you can if you can't because you're working three four however many jobs if you have a family member who can go and if you have someone who can be there at bat so that the school knows you as well as they know their kids and do they look at the students differently oh, whose parents are involved oh, absolutely. as a teacher when you have those overly involved uh, parents you read that essay three or four oh, times that's right but when you know there's accountability, because we have, you know, teachers have 30 students appear. I mean, you have a bunch. But those parents that are calling, those parents that are there, even though sometimes it may be annoying, you make sure that you that you you know you know the parents that are involved, and you pay more attention to their to their to their students. Period. Period. And even if you're a parent that didn't formally, a lot of my kids, over half of my kids' uh, parents didn't graduate from high school. Some don't even speak the language. It does not matter. You need to be connected. You need to remember that you are the ultimate stakeholder. And a lot of parents, you know, a lot of teachers say, well, parents don't come to the meetings and whatnot. And a lot of times that's because they don't feel comfortable. They're not made to feel welcome. A lot of times teachers are using words they don't understand. We've had parent workshops and we've had parent nights where they don't even have interpreters. So the kid has to interpret. He could be telling me anything, anything he wants. Anything want. they want, right? So the one, teacher just said I did a great job. Yes, I'm a straight yes. A student. And another thing that we need to do, parents, we need to make sure that if our kids are going to be watching TV and listening to the radio, our kids came home singing Trap Queen and doesn't even know what it means. We have to be having conversations with our kids about what's going on on TV because that impacts their racial socialization. We talked earlier about kids believing that it's not hood to be smart, that I'm not cool. We've had students who, we had a student in East New York who wrote, read nine books and she read the most books in the school and they wanted to do a plaque on her and she fought them so that uh, they didn't because she didn't want to be looked at as a as a as a book nerd. We have to. Re- she thought she was going to be st- stigmatized. Well, she right. didn't feel safe. She if you watch safe. movies like Aquila and the Bee, as soon as Aquila starts doing well, she gets hate from her girlfriends because of the whole way we look at education right. and what intelligence you're looks like. You're acting white, so you're not safe. So long as acting white is considered what intelligent pe- what intelligent behavior, what we consider intelligent, if that's going to be considered acting white, then what does acting black and what does acting brown I- look like? And so when you're not in a space where intelligence is celebrated, where being the smartest boy. Or girl in the room is celebrated and protected you're in a space where you're fighting a losing battle and and a lot of that has to do with the fact that our our kids haven't been introduced to our intellectual legacy so if you're reading Baldwin if you understand Malcolm X and if you know our culture I think one uh, an educational consultant Shawanza Kanjufu said I never saw a black child that thought reading was acting white who knew about Timbuktu 
So once you know about your intellectual legacy and who you are, our kids stand differently when they know that they have an intellectual basis. It's important for our kids to know we had sophisticated societies while Europeans were still in caves. Before and that's slavery. proven. Right. But they don't know that. So when you think your reality began on a slave ship, you're comfortable being an N-word. And the education system isn't dealing with that. I, I, I talked to an educator last night who they're dealing with the N-word in school and the teachers are saying, well, we don't want them to say it. But one of the things I told her is you have to teach them the history of it because a lot of them will stop saying it or will have a different understanding if you can take them through roots, if you can let Richard Pryor talk of, you know. You and you hear it on, you hear it on the, I mean, we talk a lot about it in, in hip hop music, but you hear the N word on the streets all over the, on the train, everywhere, everywhere you go. And not so much the word, but the energy behind it. The I am less than, I am any, if I talk, or if I'm well-mannered, if I do that, you know, a lot of people when they, when, when you see kids doing something negative, they say, you're acting really black right now because they've internalized, like my wife said earlier, that something is less than, the school has to deal with that. But the what the schools are often doing is the exact opposite, reinforcing that idea. So if I start any discussion about black and brown people on a slave ship, you get three paragraphs about slavery, uh, Negro spirituals, Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad, Barack Obama, civil rights, and we're, here we are up to now now it's we your are. Fault. Everything's, <laughs> everything's all good. Everything's all good. And so now I go back fault. home to my community, and there's rampant violence, there's disenfranchisement, disempowerment, and I see other communities that look completely opposite and completely different. They look like the schools in the books that I wish I were going to. Then that plays into the idea that there is something less valuable about these communities, so much less valuable that we're not even going to study what really happened to you so you have a context so that as you go through education, you can then use your education to address the problems that our history created for you. What, what about, there's also been talk in New York about more having more trade schools, like ha having right. a six-year high school with two-year trade, a four-year high school with two-year trade trade school. Now, one of the, and I think it's powerful because we need both. We need the Du Bois track and we need the Booker T track. However, one of the problems with vocational tracks is for so long when you're dealing with educators who have low expectations, what we saw before where they were channeling people into vocational tracks who might have been able to get a Ph.D. because of the low expectations. So we need to have the balance and we need to have and we need to as parents, we need to really begin the process. Our son asked us, he's eight. Am, do I am I going to college? And we said, well, yeah, we want you to go to college. But at the same time, I think of Ebro starting college, finding an interest somewhere else, leaving college, Sac State and going on to do everything you want to do. We have a student who uh, catered a dinner party we had over the weekend, started at LIU, left, decided he wanted to be a chef. Now he works for uh, White Street, catered, I mean, it's, it has uh, Chef Quincy, five-course meal, found his purpose, Does some did a lot of the free stuff that you talked about, and the, the internship. Once they have the passion, they'll be able to create things that don't even exist. And that's the possibility of a culturally responsive education. So I'm not for vocational or I'm, I'm, I'm for all of it. For what's right for that particular yes. individual and that yes. child. And that's also the parents can guide that's right. guide the child with that too if that's you see right. your, your son or daughter's interested in certain things. But you mentioned internships and there's people that say internships um, help students who are middle class and above because you have to already be in college in order to get one, that internships right. for students who are not in college or for economically disadvantaged or whatever is, is next to impossible. Well, I would say this. Internship is what you make it because I was not in college when I was doing internships. I just chose to say, you know what, I will do this for you for nothing because I want the experience of doing it. I want to I want to be able to see to show you that I can do this. And I have to say that my my um 
mentees that I've had over the years were people that I looked at like little me's. They were the one that walked in like, you know, I have to work for you. I need to work for you. I'm like, well, I don't have any money to pay you. I don't care. I just want to learn. Okay, I'm going to make you do stuff you don't want to do. I don't care. I'll do it. Okay, fine. And I feel like I had tough bosses. My mom was tough. She was, you know, gone a lot. She worked. And when we were talking, I just want to touch back on, on the education system of teaching books and things. I was lucky enough to have an English literature teacher who let us read James Baldwin and who taught us about Langston Hughes and who, you know, taught us r rich American literature that a lot of, you know, predominantly white schools just didn't get. And when we look at history books, the things that it was okay to just gloss over slavery or gloss over these different things. And I would challenge the status quo all the time. Like, why isn't more of this in here? Because my mom taught me about this. My mom actually taught me a lot of these things because she knew I wasn't going to get out of school. So that said, I think that a lot of the schools are complacent in what they're teaching. And they do kind of just press you along, give you the grades, let you move on. It's those teachers who are challenging the students. The teachers are going above the status quo. I feel like people need to start supporting them instead of always bashing all the bad ones. Find the good ones and push them ahead. I think those are the, maybe the teachers who need to have more of an opinion in the students. And doing what they're... What, what they're in, in moving the students forward because they know their students, the ones who are challenging them. So maybe they could have more input on, is vocational school better for this child? Is, is a, a certain... Thing in college better for this child. But what do you say? It seems like everybody. If I, if I told you the number of teens that come up to us, that are and approach us with a show, and we're not even a music show, we're a news and public affairs and community affairs show. Say they just want to be rappers. What do you What do you say to them, Brian? Well, what I say to them because I have about a hundred young people that want to be rappers. <laughs> but number one, I always talk about um, the jobs that are associated with rappers that they don't even know about. I used to pull out the Lil Wayne video when Lil Wayne was taking classes in psychology at University of Houston. And he was talking about how that was helping him out and whatnot. And I talk about <laughs> some of the same things, you know. Um, but I have a lot that want to produce and whatnot. But but the, but the bottom line is the reason that so many of us want to be athletes and and rappers is because there's a certain amount of creativity and empowerment that's attached to that. Those are the only people that and we see that money. are building empires. Right. Jay Z didn't go to college, but but he built an empire. So I think when we start to see more creative people, because I have a lot of people who want to be educational consultants because they see what I'm doing and I bring them in to do the assemblies and they've never seen it. Wow, you created your own job description. But we don't see, because a lot, of, a lot of people I grew up with and a lot of my students who are 17, 18 and older and they don't know how to assimilate, they didn't go to the prep school, they already know there are certain jobs I'm never gonna be able to do. They still wanna be king. Right. And the rap still allows you to build your empire. Really, we could own bodegas. Really, we could own a lot more, but people don't see that. Don't well, even know it's possible. Not only that, they don't see the facts. The average rapper in Windy Day, um, anyone who's listening, Google Wendy Day. She's a goddess in this business. She has a website where she's broken down how much a rapper really makes in a year after all the fees. And, and some of the numbers may not be all the way up to date, but it's somewhere in the area of about 36000 a year. You can't even live off that in New York City. So I don't know why you would want to be famous and broke, but if, you, if that's your choice, then fine. But it's the lottery menta mentality. Everybody thinks they can play for but the NBA. Everybody thinks they can yeah. Every kid, we know more about Wheezy. We know more about the rappers out today yeah. than Chris Brown, than we know about Tennessee Coates, than we know about Cornell West, than we know about people who are really putting it down for us. And we got to ask ourselves, who's, 
fault is that? Because I think the condition of the people is a reflection of the leadership. So we can't make all this money with this negative media, pumping it, pumping it, break our kids' legs and then blame them for being crippled. I barely graduated from high school. If I wouldn't have got a football, if I wouldn't have played football, there's no way I was going to UC Davis and Penn State. I was a 2.0 from white schools with low expectations of me. So I think that we have to, um, you know, we, we got we got to teach them. We have to teach them. We got to partner with the Ryan Max. We got to bring people in um, into the schools that can tap that entrepreneurial spirit. That's in most all of our young people. Yeah. And in, in terms of developing that, like you, you were talking about bloggers too, because that's enough, especially a lot, a lot of women want to be bloggers and they think they can make money with that. And I want to be a blogger. That's what, that's what a lot of the well, girls anyone, will say. Anyone can blog, go for it. Now, if you want to make money, Okay, that's another conversation. Well, how, how do you I'm going to talk about developing entrepreneurial spirit for a second. When I was a child, we were very poor. My mom couldn't afford to send me on field trips and stuff. So when we sold chocolate Santas at Christmas time, when we sold Campfire Girl cookies, and we sold 4-H bake sales, my mom said, you better sell the heck out of that because that's how you're getting there. And I was, here I was, eight, nine years old. Of course, nowadays it's unheard of to have a little girl walking around in the neighborhood knocking on doors. But back then it was okay because you wouldn't just get kidnapped, I guess. You would get snatched. Right. Um, but I used to do that. And I went hard. And I was always number one. And when I We, found we have the, kids on the street selling candy bars. Yeah, they and do. The, and I support them. I support I them. Because I feel like that's teaching. Every time I see a bake sale, even though I know I don't need that cookie, <laughs> I still give them the money. Unless the kids look miserable. I did see a couple of them where they had a bunch of kids. And it looked it, it looked like there was like the ringleader taking pimping all the money, out. pimping yeah. them out. Right. Yeah, I've seen that too. Right. But yeah, I think it's it's good to encourage those children because that's how I learned. I learned entrepreneurial skills through kind of through force in a way, but it taught me how to talk to people, you know, through 4-H. And, and that's another thing. We're missing those extracurricular activities, activities for, for kids. The kids. There right. are 4-H programs available in New York, and I have not seen not one 4-H group. It's a free, it's a, it's, a, it's a funded program of any mom that wanted to get their kids in 4-H. And you know in 4-H, you could do whatever you want, photography, you could show your dog at the fair. It's like a hobby, a uh, like a hobby club? Anything, you could grow a pumpkin, you could do whatever you want. <laughs> And you can get ribbons and prizes, but it teaches, I feel... It gives you some sense of accomplishment. Of accomplishment. Right, right. And, and I think, you know, same with, with getting the kids in Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and things like that. Those serve a function for teaching entrepreneurial skills. Right. They do. And Lisa, you know, I had a bunch of students last year who were looking for jobs, like a bunch of that just graduated and seniors. And it was funny because I was sending resumes around to friends I had. But guess who was hiring? Who was hiring? My block. Like the reality is the yeah. underground economy, we can say what we want, but all of my yeah. all of my lawyer, teacher friends, when we couldn't give these kids jobs, the OG on the block had business yeah. for them. Yeah. And um, that's unfortunate because a lot of these geniuses that we see selling candy on the train who are nine years old and already have the entrepreneurial spirit, if we don't create structures that let them express it, they're gonna be outside hustling. Agree. Definitely, and they're, they're, already, they're already out there. Right. You know, and it, it, sometimes it's sad to see the kids that little. Right. Right. I had a friend, we were walking, and he said, how much? He goes, I'll, I'll buy some candy bars. He goes, if you sell this to me for $2 a bar, how much do you get? And the kid's like, 25 cents. <gasps> he's like, you need to re renegotiate another deal wow. with the, so he's telling the kid how to wow. renegotiate another deal with the uh, thing. But, but Brian, real quick, final word in, yes. in, in, in terms of getting our kids educated. I mean, well, first of all, one of the things that I always tell my kids is you can't even let school interfere with your education. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Carter G. Woodson wrote a book in the 1930s called The Miseducation of the Negro. 
Negro, and I encourage. He's the founder of Black, he created Black History Month, second black to ever graduate from Harvard. But the whole book and all his work dealt with, if our education in the black community is not culturally relevant and socially practical, we will be getting all these degrees to rub elbows with people but do very little for our community, while people who don't have formal education, like he said, will open peanut stands in our neighborhood and um, have more of an economic base and political power. So I would say regardless to what what it is as a parent, let's help our kids define purpose. Let's not make it an either or. Let them know that college and, and, has opportunities an and. and let's expose them. And let's be clear that you don't need college because where I live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, I lived in Washington Heights, there are people who are sending their kids to college frying chicken wings in Chinese restaurants. We can come up with ideas that can generate revenue in our community. All right, I want to thank our guests for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers. Uh, Dove Clark, Brian Favors, Louis Favors, thank you all very, very much. In this episode of Street Soldiers, if you're just tuning in or you tuned in late, you can catch it on lisaevers.com right after the show. We post the show. It's a free, free podcast, show audio. You can listen to it right there um, anytime you want, as well as the other Street Soldiers episodes. I want to thank you very, very much for being part of the show. And also, um, you know, we're going to continue the discussion a little bit on Twitter, at Lisa Evers, Instagram, at Lisa Evers, Google+, Facebook. And uh, you can check out all the Street Soldiers episodes, a lot of my Fox 5 videos on LisaEvers.com. Check me out on the Fox 5 News tonight at 6 and 10, 5 and 10 during the week. If you want to be a part of this show in any way, contact my executive producer, Tony. Capone, that's tone the number four real at gmail.com. Tone the number four real at gmail.com. And thank my whole team here at Hot 97, our general manager, Deanne Levingston, our program director, P.O. Farrell, music director, T.T. Torres, and my Street Soldiers team, executive producer, Tone Capone, associate producer, Rose D., production assistants from Melissa Quinones and Mia Bell, and uh, our one and only board op and DJ, resident DJ, the one and only Michael Medium in the building with us. Big shout out to Don Perignon um, for helping us get this all set up as well. And Steve Pepe from Hot 97 engineering our special visitor in studio fox 5's executive producer chris sobel with us as well and remember don't forget watch me on the fox 5 news too you know i need that check so uh <laughs> have a great week everybody remember use your mind it's your best weapon i hope it's your only weapon i'm lisa evers push for peace All right.